It's January 2nd, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to episode 10 of The Candid Frame. Well, first off, I want to welcome all the new subscribers to the show. That was quite a jump uh, since our last episode with Tara Whitney. So I'd like to welcome you all, all aboard, as well as thanking all the other uh, listeners who have been around since the very beginning. I appreciate all of you taking the time to, to listen to the show and make it a regular part of your life. I appreciate it. Uh, before I get to uh, the, the interview, there are a couple of things I wanted to cover. I noticed recently that on the iTunes website that not all previous episodes of The Candid Frame are up and available. Uh, it seems like every other episode is up there and that they're limiting the uh, previous audio to just five episodes. I'm not sure exactly why that is. If you have any insight into that, uh, email me at uh, thecandidframe at gmail.com. I'll try and research it a little bit to see if there's anything I can do about it, but I suspect um, that they're probably limiting uh, the number of uh, previous episodes for, for everyone, not just me. I'm not that paranoid. But um, if you have any insight, please uh, let me know. Also, uh, as part of the next interview, uh, we had a little technical problems, and halfway through, uh, my digital recorder uh, gave up the ghost, and I had to... Um, record using my laptop computer and the built-in mic. So you may notice a difference in the uh, audio quality between the two. I, I've made a, an attempt to trying uh, trying to make them uh, as cl- sound as close as possible to each other, but uh, I'm new to this audio thing, so it may not be um, as seamless as I would like it to be, but I don't think uh, that will be a problem in allowing you to enjoy the interview, which is with Don Gale. Now, Don Gale... And I have a, a lot of things in common, which include a, a passion for photography. But uh, what brought him to, to my attention a little bit was the fact that we had both learned photography through the Boys Club of America. Uh, it was a real life-changing experience for the both of us. And that was something that uh, um, that really struck me about um, Don's story. But what was really intriguing about Don's story is how he made that initial interest of photography in his youth his career. And I know that a lot of people aspire to be able to do just that. And so a lot of our conversation will be about photography, as as with all the other photographers I've interviewed on the Candor Frame before. But I also wanted to uh, discuss his take on being able to make a successful career out of photography, especially when you... uh, not only doing photography, but you're also trying to raise a family, as he did, here in Southern California, um, as well as being a, a shooter who's been doing work in the fields of commercial and industrial portraiture uh, photography. He's also a, an avid outdoor photographer, which really is his passion, and he's managed to make that an increasing, and a large part of uh, his photographs and uh, and his career. And he also does a lot of teaching, including workshops uh, that are uh, of his own, as well as those sponsored by companies such as Tamron and Bogan. So, in a moment, our interview with Don Gale. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for uh, agreeing to take the time to do this. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. This is fun. Well, when I, when I heard you about your biography, I really connected because we both had learned photography for the boys' clubs. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And uh, I, I was handed a camera by uh, the director here like in 1966, I think, and he uh, was amazed that somebody trusted me with a, it was an old uh, <laughs> Pentax Spotmatic. And I didn't, you know, that was that was a real camera, and nobody had the good stuff back then. So it was just amazing that somebody would trust a kid with with a camera. But that's the mindset of a voice club director, you know? They, yeah. they trust kids. Because <laughs> yeah, for me, it completely changed my life. You know, when I got that camera and I got into the dark room and I was able to finally, you know, make prints. It was, mm. You know, it was the first opportunity for me as a kid to be able to create something from nothing. Yep. And it was very empowering. I, I was suspected it probably was very much the same thing oh, for you. And especially if you get some... Uh, I didn't have any, any hobbies or anything except fishing that I really liked back then. So when you find yourself doing something that you like, and then other people tell you, hey, this is pretty good, you know? You're doing good. Then it, the encouragement makes you think, well, maybe I am good. And you keep going on and, and realizing that it, that it's fun and it's uh, satisfying. How did it turn from being you know something like a hobby and a passion into something that you... You realize, oh, I could maybe make a living at this. Initially, when I was um, playing football in high school, I got I broke my neck uh, my last year of high school, mm. first game of the season. So I was found myself back on the sidelines, just kind of hanging around with my friends. And I pulled this camera out and started taking some pictures because I had access, you know, field field access, and then started selling the pictures to the girlfriends of my football player buddies and their parents at the booster club in the, you know, the meetings and I realized wow this is pretty amazing you know I'm having fun I don't feel like I'm hanging around uh, on the sidelines doing nothing because I had this neck brace on and people were buying my pictures and, I'm, and I didn't want to go to college anyway so I'm looking for some way mm -hmm. to avoid having to, to do that and then uh, a couple of those referrals led to weddings and some small commercial jobs and pretty soon I was still living at home um, and I had a pretty thriving business to the point where my dad sold me <laughs> our house phone number because he didn't want to feel all those calls. <laughs> we had that put back in the in the other room where I was living. So yeah, it was it happened pretty fast. And I just hung in there because I didn't want it to go away. One of the things about getting into photography that young uh, as a business is photography is a challenge enough to learn, but learning the business oh, man. is is a challenge. And a lot of people don't succeed as a result of, of, of not knowing how to effectively be a businessman. How did you navigate that? Um, you're right. Even even though I've been doing it for, it's almost 35 years now, uh, I've made some pretty bogus business decisions just because it's that, that left brain, right brain thing. If you're an artist, you're probably not thinking about numbers and, and all the other financial stuff. I guess I just needed, I just had to make money. So uh, I was just busy, really busy, underpricing myself from uh, what I should have been, and when I look back at, at, at the pricing and stuff, but uh, I just was so satisfied, I, I felt that if I charge more, it might be the point where people wouldn't come back, and I didn't and I didn't want to have to get a real job, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but the business part of it is, uh, you know, if you're doing it as, a, as your sole source of revenue, and you're, it's not just a hobby for you, then... I think that that's a big area that's lacking in the in the training process. And I see it at some of these conferences I go to. Um, if there is, say, there's 20 
sessions going on in the morning, and if a couple of them are business related, they're usually pretty lightly attended. Uh, the other ones, you know, the boudoir photography or the glamour shots, or how to how to do you know new Photoshop techniques or new play, those things are packed. But the business end of things is is uh, pretty much overlooked. And it's not just because there are people not interested in the business end, though. Because there are a lot of people who who aspire to do just that. Yeah, yeah. I've got a I've got a friend who is he retired from I think he was in banking. And he saw that I liked what I was doing, so he said, how can I make money in photography? So I've been kind of mentoring him along, and he's he's doing okay, but he is a businessman first who's just taken up the, the camera and computer as tools, and it's a little frustrating for him because he's, you know, he's looking at it only as a business, not as an art form, and he's it's not as, he's not having a whole lot of fun yeah. at it, but he is making some money. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, it's, it's tough, and I think most people that get into this like you and me you, you're doing it for the satisfaction personal satisfaction and then maybe some reinforcement when somebody else likes what you do and then maybe that's so the money is the third or fourth thing down yeah. the list uh, as compared to the guy who I just talked about who needs you know he's got a big mortgage payment he needs to go from one profession to another and still not miss a beat that's, that's pretty tough yeah that's scary yeah looking at your work I see that you 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 shoot a diversity of stuff. You do commercial work. You do portraiture. You do, mm-hmm. do weddings. You do and you do outdoor stuff. And I think it's interesting that in, once you get into a photographic business, it's easy to get caught up into doing the work that brings in the money, mm. but that doesn't satisfy you artistically. And I think right. you've been man- you've managed to, you know, sort of balance that out where you do the work that it brings in yep. the money, but you still maintain your ability to go out and go out hiking and do the landscape photography that you love. Yeah. Yeah, I started uh, with portraits and then weddings and then product photography. Uh, It kind of evolved that way because some of the brides and grooms' parents owned companies and they needed pictures taken of of their product stuff. And I got to the point where I wasn't having fun with it anymore. I mean, I did not look forward to Saturdays. I'd go to bed Friday night thinking, hey, this is getting to be, you know, I don't think I want to get up at whatever hour it was and load all the gear because we were doing a full-on Monty Zucker-inspired uh, yeah. wedding approach with lights and backdrops and meeting them three hours ahead of time. So it got to be where I just hated weddings. And I wasn't crazy about product shooting either because of the deadlines and sometimes fake deadlines uh, just to make you jump through some hoops to get them the film processed and then they sit on it for a week. So I've always had a, a, a love of the outdoors so when this couple of workshops that I did initially worked out, I just said, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to continue going for this. And so I actually made a concerted effort to take down product samples from the studio showroom and to not advertise anymore for weddings or product photography so that it wouldn't get in my way of pursuing the, the nature and landscape stuff, which I, I love. These workshops, these are workshops that you led or ones that you participated in? I, act, I tried, well, what I would do is I'd go out on my own and I'd find that I'm out there with a the tripod at the right time of day with the camera and I would attract a little bunch of people. Even if they were just fishermen or hikers, they'd always stop and I noticed, hey, I'm out here with my camera trying to take a picture and I'm answering all these questions. Somebody said, well, then you got to teach, you know, there's, you could do a workshop. What's a workshop? Well, it's where you take people out and they pay you to come along and kind of pick your brain. So I put an ad up in a, an REI store, I think it was in 97, and just I just picked a place that I like to go up in Bishop Canyon. And I said, weekend workshop, 140 bucks or 120 bucks. 
and we had like three people. And then next weekend we did one at Joshua Tree and there was like ten people. I thought, wow, it was fun. It was fun. And they all showed up and they, they were outdoor people. They were photographers. Uh, it was It's great. And it's just been kind of going crazy ever since then. That's great. No, if I'd have looked at the chance of being able to do that, you know, to, to uh, get into this market, which is uh, so heavily com- competitive, especially just, I mean, everybody asked me, well, how do you sell your pictures or what do you do? I said, man, you know what? What I did, I wouldn't recommend uh, as, a, as, a, as an approach, but it works. I, there's just so much uh, out there competition-wise. Everybody is taking great scenic pictures now with the better cameras and good mm-hmm. printers. And God, I just read the other day that Canon has a new 12-ink printer out that's probably going to be incredible. So the quality is there, and, and the competition is stiff. So you just have to be kind of clever in your in your ways of getting your your stuff exhibited so but like we were talking about earlier there there are plenty of workshops and books and and videos that get into the technical aspect of photography about you know how to how to set your camera how Mm. to you know calibrate your monitor and and a lot of people are focusing on that but the results that we're seeing oftentimes are, are, are less than inspiring yep so when you're teaching people how how do you kind of get that across because so much especially now because digital is so big everyone wants to learn the technical stuff how do you right. get across the fact that slow down yeah. learn how to see first before exactly. you exactly seeing light I think is the is the biggest thing and digital I find works if I can get the discussion away from all the technical stuff and in back to lighting and composition from the get go on the first morning then digital can work to our advantage when I'm teaching because you get the immediate feedback. So I initially the first morning we don't we don't do much except talk about light and contrast and tone, you know, light fall off and we'll do some quick little examples uh, where I'll see something that's lit well regardless of what it is and we'll take shots of that and then compare, you know, look at uh, the tones on even if it's just on the back of the camera just looking mm-hmm. at things that uh, people may not have even thought about before. Just lighting uh, like we're talking earlier, uh, walking along through this last weekend up in Big Sur, and we'd see how the light was reflected uh, in the morning, it was hitting off of a cliff, bouncing back onto the face of this redwood tree, and it was just incredible light, that unless you had were even looking for that, you wouldn't even see it. Everything else was pretty mundane, and there was this one redwood tree that was just glowing, so we used that as a, as a backdrop, and then we put a person in front of it, and it was also... It was a great light on the tree, and it was a great portrait light, available portrait light out in the middle of the forest, and it had nice direction to it. It was almost like a studio softbox coming in with a Rembrandt lighting pattern. Yeah. It was awesome. So those kind of things are what I think I can teach to people at a workshop that they couldn't just go out and learn. They can, all the technical stuff, you can. there's so many mm-hmm. places to learn that. But I think you need to have somebody out there who can actually show you how to look for things or how to predict, okay, the sun's here, there's a canyon wall there, uh, the light's probably going to be coming from this direction, so if we get over here, we can shoot through the fog that's backlit and and show them that there's some of those formulas that that exist for good lighting that you just would never, you, know, you might stumble on them, but you never know why. You come up with these good pictures, but you don't know why you got a good picture. Uh, you have an affinity for like Sierra Nevadas, mm. I was reading. Yep. What is it about um, that, that part of the, the country that appeals to you so much? 
I think initially I liked it because I could always go there and catch my limit of trout. <laughs> hike, hike back in a, more than a mile, man. It was it was a piece of cake. My dad used to take me up there, and I remember now uh, looking back at it, I would still always have a camera, and I would like to take pictures in the morning when the sun was just coming up over the ridge through the trees and reflecting off the lake. But I didn't I didn't know anything about film limitations or anything, so I would get these okay pictures, but so caught a lot of trout. <laughs> and then I find myself more and more going in with, with a camera and kind of kind of almost bailing out on the fishing aspect because the good fishing unfortunately occurs right when the light's good. So what do you do? You stand there with your fishing pole or with the camera. So I pretty much do the, do the camera. I just love, I guess it's the light. It's got everything, you know, it's got trees, mountains, lakes, rivers, waterfalls. If you get up early, you can do the uh, you know, pictures in the shade with the time lapse. Some of those cascading yeah. streams coming down out of the hills are awesome. Um, Snow capped peaks, and then the light. You know, the, you get that uh, almost an alpine alpine glow at uh, at sunset there, which is just phenomenal. So I guess it's probably the lighting, and specifically the eastern Sierra. From what I've seen, from like Lone Pine up to Bridgeport, it's just there's something about that. I don't know. I I can't explain it, but it's uh, probably the same kind of a mystical thing that's grabbed so many other photographers over the years that just uh, they just kind of magnetically if I don't go there a couple times in the summer I feel like literally it sounds kind of cliche but I feel like something's tugging at me to go there I just need I need to be there to, to uh, just to take some pictures or just to be there really just, just to smell the sage as you're driving up to the Owens Valley uh, typically you get maybe an afternoon thunderstorm and it activates the smell of the desert then you get up in the pine trees up at you know about 8,000 feet it's just great I think it's an important aspect of, of, of any photographer's work is finding something that they have that strong an affinity for uh, in this case a location that kind of like draws you back yeah because when you look at the works of you know of, of some of the great landscape photographers they weren't traveling all over the world and all over the country sh- yep. shooting oftentimes they kind of specialized in a particular location because yep. you have the opportunity to to get to know a place you know, yep. it's that familiar familiarity. I always miss that <laughs> word, but it, it's that that creates opportunities that don't occur if you're just a casual visitor. Yep, yep. Well, I know. I read something from um, a friend of mine pointed out that Edward Weston had said when we were up in Point Lobos for the first time. I thought, God, what an unbelievable place this is. And he said, Well, this is where Weston used to hang out. And then he said, Check this out. One of his quotes was, "Anything." further than either 500 feet or 500 yards from the road isn't worth shooting. <laughs> so he was, you know, a lot of those guys hung out either on the central coast or almost exactly the same uh, latitude, just a little further east on the eastern side of the Sierra. Mm-hmm. And it was seems, seems like that area of California is a big magnet for a lot of old great photographers and even some of the current ones that are, that are that like... Uh, Franz Lanning, I think, is in Santa Cruz, and George yeah. Lepp is up in that area, and uh, a ton of those guys up in Mammoth Lakes. So, and Galen Rowell moved to Bishop. He's that's what it really impressed me because I've always liked that area, and to hear somebody like him say, who's been everywhere, that Bishop was the place that he felt was the best, offered the the best variety and the most uh, amazing scenery yeah. year round. So, you've been doing a, a wilderness series. Tell me about that. Well, that's just just what we uh, came up with as a title for the series of pictures that I come up with from traveling, because I'm traveling all over the place. So 
it's just a, a name of uh, I was going to call it the Sierra Highlands but I realized that's, uh, that's not really a correct term <laughs> it's not, so the, just the wilderness series is pretty a little more generic yeah it's a uh, I guess it incorporates everything that we're doing. I'm, I have some, some instructional tapes that we've put together, and those, I guess, fall into that category. And we have a line of cards, prints, you know, matted prints and frame mm -hmm. prints. And we have them in uh, traveling uh, exhibits. Maybe like six times a year I'll go to an outdoor um, sporting or fishing show and have a booth and prints on display and teach uh, some workshops there, too. So it's mm -hmm. kind of fun. And then I <laughs> took my wife up to a... We both love music, so we went to this uh, modern-day version of Woodstock, which is up near Yosemite twice mm -hmm. a year. And it's kind of like Woodstock minus the drugs. It's everybody who survived that <laughs> era. We're still around, and we still... They're all in recovery. <laughs> right. And, and they still want to go do something like uh, they used to do. So we go up there, and, and uh, so, of course, I took my camera. And then after a couple of years, I was on the official uh, staff photography crew, which is a blast. And in this last couple of years, I've been teaching a two-hour workshop in the morning for the there's like 6,000 people that go to this thing and everybody's camping mm -hmm. so they get up some of them come over in the morning we do a little lighting demonstration there and show some pictures from the uh, the show the night before and this is I mean, this is out in the woods and uh, I've got my printers hooked up there with the uh, inverters from the car yeah. and uh, doing some processing of the, some of the live stage acts from last night and show everybody the prints and teach them techniques they all have their cameras there so that's a lot of fun it's a it really for me is an obsession yeah. <laughs> I'm just I'm glad I haven't uh, haven't been exposed to too many other addictive things but the photography is is certainly addictive for me particularly when you got a family you know negotiating that whole thing and it's definitely an obsession but you know when you when it's a, when it's a personal passion and then it's also a business you know negotiating you know the wife and the kids can yeah. be quite difficult yeah. how, do, how, how have you managed to, to do that well I remember one <laughs> some of the best shots I've missed were when I was being pleaded with by my kids dad we're not going to stop again are we <laughs> like I remember leaving Yosemite Valley one year after a snowstorm and it cleared up and it was the most phenomenal thing I'd only seen pictures like this in Ansel Adams books and these other guys and I remember driving out of the valley thinking I just I just drove past some of the most amazing shots that I've ever seen just because of you know I couldn't, uh, I couldn't dare to stop and take another picture and make these guys sit in the car while I took it. So it is, it is tough. The kids are older now, and uh, and it's not as, it's not as as big a thing as when you're out with the young young kids on a summer camping trip and they're all under your care. But yeah, it, it's tough. At that time, for me, it was more the product and the wedding and everything, running yeah. a business. So we, I, I wasn't uh, doing as much nature stuff, but. Now that they're older, it's uh, it's great to have this. It's like a second childhood for me yeah. to go back and and have my interest rekindled. We talked about this earlier too. You have, you like to shoot a lot of stuff with a, a simple camera, just so you can feel freed up from all the 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 technic the uh, technical thing and having that ball and chain to the to the camera. And uh, I like to do the same thing now that makes me feel like I did back in the mid-60s when I was just getting into this, that the magic that's there, yeah. like in the dark room when you see the picture coming up or when you uh, look through a, you know, looking down into a twin lens reflex, and it's that's a whole different thing that most people haven't experienced yeah. either. If you've never looked it down into a twin lens reflex without a uh, an eye-level finder, that's a cool, 
cool thing because it looks like a little miniature, like a two-inch monitor, mm -hmm. um, which I think probably would be something that would be nice to have on cameras now, where you, instead of having the the eye level, you could you could look down at it. Because we used to be able to set the cameras right on the ground easily. Now it's with most of these SLRs. If you want to shoot from ground level, you would be laying on the ground. Uh -huh. I, that would be cool. I think I speaking of that, I think I just saw somebody advertising a an aftermarket screen that fits yeah, that goes on, on the viewfinder. SLRs, yeah. Uh -huh. I don't know how that's going to work. That would be cool. That would be awesome. I see that you're you're printing a lot using inkjet now, but you you came yep. you, you're like me. You started off in in, in the darkroom. Oh yeah, yeah. Sloshing with the chemicals. How is the fact that you are familiar with using, you know, you know, using the chemical process, dodging and burning and all that, mm -hmm. helped you in terms of being able to create prints now, using using. I think digital? it's helped a lot. I think it helped me a lot just knowing about color and knowing about what happens when you darken down an area or you dodge it or burn it. Although in Photoshop, I guess those two tools aren't really the best ones to use to accomplish that. But uh, it just seems that because of that experience, I've been able to catch on to the printing thing a little better. And I have a an eye, which I guess is just like an acquired skill to be able to see color and know if you, something needs to have some yellow pulled out or some blue added. Yeah. I, can, I can get there a little quicker from the old... Uh, darkroom days of just judging color or looking at film that was you know, got some of those early ectochromes and stuff, man, you'd have to find out, it said ISO 100 but it wasn't, yeah. and you do a test and you find out what it really is and then you put a filter in front of the camera to correct for the shift those are skills that I thought weren't going to do me any good <laughs> after, you know yeah. after they finally got all the the, uh, the film speeds and, and the colors correct, but now it's coming back into play and it's, it's a big, big help one of the, the thing I wanted to ask you about was the whole idea about, you know, of printing and the role it plays in, in your work. Um, so, tell me about that. Yeah, well, for me, that's it. Always has been the the ultimate test of any lens or film or uh, program is is how does it look on paper at the end. I don't, you know, for me, it's got to be on paper. That's what I'm used to seeing and. Uh, not just, I mean, I see some of these people now with a little uh, picture, a digital frame on their desk where it rotates the images in a, you know, on a screen, and, and I'm thinking that's that's cute and interesting, but for me, it's how does it look on paper. So the, some of the printers I've been using lately, um, this one that's right there that's the uh, HP in their battle with Canon and Epson has come out with one that now you can feed really thick, fine art paper through. Some of the hammer mule papers that, that are just absolutely wonderful textures and, uh, you know, flat matte surfaces, uh, real canvas. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, I, I think one of the things that can happen is you can get sidetracked and think, like we di were discussing earlier, that, you know, you take a, a mediocre image and you work it to death in a computer and it's still a mediocre image to begin with. It's just been worked to death. Same with paper surfaces. It's not going to make... Uh, it's not going to make the print, but it can certainly be a, the final choice that makes a great picture perfect. If you yeah. can put that right image on the right surface, it's just awesome. And being able to feed thicker papers through these things now and, and know they're going to last, that's that's the good thing too, is before you could feed paper through it, but if it wasn't 
if it hadn't been tested by Wilhelm or somebody, you didn't know how long that thing's yeah. going to last. And that's that's a concern because I'm selling stuff. So traditionally, when when we made made photographs, you make a working print, and we usually would mark it up and go, "Okay, I'm going to dodge it here for about three seconds, add mm, you know five right. seconds here." Um, with digital, because we're looking at the monitor, we don't get a marker and start right, right. you know writing up on our, on our screens, but how is your process in terms of looking at a print because it's it, do you strictly you know look at a computer and then and and judge it there or do you make a work print and make your assessment of that and make changes and go back to the computer to make the changes how is that how's that work yeah. for you well just recently since i got this this is a, a decent monitor it's a lacy and i struggled with with a monitor that was okay but not tightly calibrated this one is very tightly calibrated with the printers so sometimes I'll nail it right off the bat I mean I won't need to come back and do a second print but typically yeah, it's the same as in the darkroom you look at the first one and then you can still see things that need to be changed or cropped maybe or uh, certain areas that might need a little bit of special attention mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a similar process to the darkroom except um, w- without being in that dark room with the door closed, you know, the privacy aspect of it and the, and just being locked up in that room uh, tended to me to, to steep uh, a little more creativity. Now when I'm just sitting in my regular office doing what I feel is, you know, that's the, that's the significant part. Once you, you've taken the picture, that's, that's very important and that's where you need to be, your senses need to be heightened and you're really paying attention. And then that happens again at the final stage when you're putting that thing on paper because now it's the this is where you're trying to to preserve what you thought you saw in the field and doing that in a brightly lit office where the phone's ringing and people are coming in and you're doing what you feel this is really important what I'm doing right now we used to be able to go in the dark room lock the door turn the light on do not disturb and nobody would even try to come in because they knew that they they didn't know what they knew they'd ruin something if they came in the dark room here in your office they come in, oh, what are you doing? Let me sit and I pull up a chair. And, how do you, and they're starting asking you questions while you're doing this very important stuff. So um, that's kind of why I've got this little bunker downstairs here. Mm-hmm. Is so I can come here, I can lock the door, and I can uh, let somebody know that I just don't want to be disturbed for a while. Or I just come in early or stay late. Yeah, I, I enjoy being the, that part of it is is awesome. Just the, I still get the same rush watching the paper come out of the inkjet printer as I used to watching the, the colors and the and the image come up in, in in the darkroom. It's different, but it's the same. There's something just about holding it in your hands. Yeah, right. That, you know, whether it came out of a, a, a tray or whether it came out of a printer, the experience of holding it in your hand and realizing that you made this yeah. is something you just can't oh, replace you regardless of how it happens. Yeah, and the time now is about, I guess it's probably, I haven't timed it, but it seems like it's about the same as in a dark room where you come in, sit down in front of your workstation, which would be the same as going into your dark room, and maybe within 15 minutes, you've got your first print to look at. So it's about the same time. Yeah. Uh, the printers are getting a little faster, but I never did. I'm not a big volume producer anyway, so I would ma- mainly do one or two of one, and then I would switch the negative in the in the enlarger and do a complete other image. Which that's where I think where 
where digital can really shine is you have the ability to go back and, and if you like how you did it the first time, mm -hmm. you can always make more that are exactly the same. But I think that's that's probably one of the one of the stigmas. In fact, somebody just asked me this last night in class. They said, "What a, are digital prints going to hold the the value? Are they going to be accepted in art galleries the way that conventionally printed images have been in the past?" And I don't know. I think it, a lot of it's uh, now more up to the integrity of of the photographer. Right. If you're doing a limited edition, you really better have that edition limited and you know, they used, used to be able to tear up, you know, destroy the plate if you're doing a, a, an offset uh, poster or a limited edition piece. But now with with files, I mean, somebody, there could be lots of copies of that file all over the place. And and the ability for somebody to reproduce that exactly the same as, as yours, you know, that it's a it's a big issue. In terms of the, the sales of, of your prints, um, how does that work? Do people, uh, how do people find out about your work? And... How, how how are you in terms of marketing your work, in terms of print sales? Um, the, I'm doing so many things kind of simultaneously, juggling all these balls. One of them is the prints and the print sales. We have uh, several retail locations. Uh, some of the REI stores have our prints on display. Um, we've got a few independent uh, just gift shops that have them. And then we go out and do uh, these uh, shows about five or six art shows and and travel shows a year where we have a booth which does a couple of things it gets uh, good leads for our workshops and we can sell prints and then get uh, customers that'll come back for you looking for a specific you know location do you have anything of the Grand Canyon and then we'll send them some small JPEGs you know online to see yeah. if they if we have something uh, that, that meets in their mind what they're looking for but I think print sale, if I had to depend just on print sales, it would be it would be tough. The teaching and the workshops and the uh, just everything all all combined is, is what it's really taken for me to 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 make it work as as a full time profession. Yeah. But I haven't really pursued the print sales because that involves like we talked about earlier, it's like setting up a gallery display. Once you get the okay for the display, then you gotta set it up, then you gotta be there, and then you gotta break it down at the end and same same thing with with prints in retail stores. Most photographers are fairly small businessmen, so we don't have these distributors. We don't have people out there to handle all the restocking and counting, doing inventory and stuff. So I think that's why you don't see a lot of nature photography in stores, other than specific galleries, just because it's just such a um, distribution nightmare. Yeah, that that, that was. That was a part of um, about your work and about your career that I found particularly of interest is that you know when people think about having uh, a photographic career, professional photographic career, you know they get this image of this guy in a studio and working with beautiful models and yeah. shooting and, <laughs> right. and and thinking, okay, I want to be able to do that, and it's like that's a very small percentage of the photographers that are out there, yep. and that you really have to have your hand in a whole lot of different things. Just not just taking the pictures of, of just say a wedding or something, but you know, diversifying what you're doing in order to be able to maintain uh, a successful a successful business. Yep. Um, one of the things I, I've one of the things I the first that, uh, that I first saw from you that was a little different was those that, the video that you were doing. Mm, right. Uh, the one that you did on San Francisco and the and the California coast. 
And yeah. what I liked about that is that, as we talked about before, it wasn't such a uh, another another technical how-to video. It was it was a video that was showing, okay, here we are in a beautiful location. This is how I work in terms of seeing, which I thought was really I thought it was really yeah. great because regardless of whether or not uh, a person who watches that video goes to exactly that same location, they have an opportunity to go, okay, this is how he was looking at that, and I can apply that regardless of whether I'm there or whether I'm shooting at a location near my home. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, because we had when we when we did that particular video, um, we had to pick a time frame out ahead of time to get me and and the guys that were helping do it. Um, our schedules freed up to do that, and we ran into terrible weather the whole time. It was just raining and and ridiculous. So we were literally um, kind of putting into practice a lot of the things that happen to nature photographers as you run into situations where the, it's not what you expected. Mm -hmm. You're at the right. You're at the place you knew you were going to be at, but you don't have the light that you expected. So you have to go to Plan B, and maybe instead of shooting this big wide angle shot, now you're shooting some macro pictures with a reflector, or you're you're scrambling around to, to find something uh, with whatever type of light is there. So that's yeah. What I'm trying to uh, get across on that particular tape was how to judge the conditions and then kind of visualize how that's going to look on paper when when you're done. Okay. And that's probably the the thing that most people have the biggest difficulty doing is, and I'm sure it's the case because I hear that comment a lot is well this picture doesn't look anything like what I saw. Well, it's it, it looks exactly like a picture of that scene. It's just that you may have chosen the wrong scene to shoot to begin with, and you you weren't aware of things like contrast and and the film's narrow narrower spectrum of uh, you know dynamic range than than what we can see with. So that's uh, something that once people have that explained to them, and they can see you do it. And then with digital, you can show them exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. If they can remember, uh, it's you know it, it is a situation that that if it's repeated somewhere down the road, the same conditions will re result in you know like Dean Collins used to say, if it works on Monday, it'll work on Friday. Mm -hmm. And he set up these lights, and it was an amazing thing to see. And I thought, well, how am I going to do that? Well, it, it's all for, it's a formula in a studio because you can create those ratios and you can create those contrast ranges when you're outdoors. You, you can't create it, so you pretty much have to remember what it looked like. Mm -hmm. And if you remember this looks like this, and it looked great in the end, then that's that's a good thing. You also need to remember how bad things look, so you know not to shoot those things. Yeah. That's that's probably the most difficult. And recognizing that what you capture in the camera is just a starting point, that it that's not the end. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Because if if you learn how to look at lighting and, and, and contrast and exposure and get a, as good a quality file as you can, when you bring it into the computer, you have the most flexibility possible to be able to produce that, oh. you know, that final print. Yeah. And especially, I think, having a background, if, and a lot of folks I've run into now have never shot film, and a good percentage of them have never been in a darkroom. So knowing... Uh, Having that as a background, I think, is a big a big help when you mm -hmm. start attacking the the file and you figure what do I need to do with this thing. Um, aside from the fact that you might want to change the color a little bit, 
uh, some of those the darkroom tools definitely and that experience definitely helps out. Yeah, pre-visualizing is as important now as it ever was. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, one of the things I like to end on is asking a photographer uh, what other photographer, if they if they had to pick one, would they recommend for for listeners to you know go out and check out their work? So who would that be for you, and and why? Uh, well, a couple for sure. In landscape photography, I think Franz Lanning would be my choice. I think he's just got the the package of art and technique down, at least to what you know really rings my bell when I see his stuff. I just think, man, that is just an awesome picture. Uh, and as far as lighting, I think Dean Collins, any of his fine light stuff is just amazing. He was considering he was colorblind, basically. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either until uh, he used to work at a lab right down the street here and. Uh, met him and, and I was looking at all these pictures he had taken and his ability to judge tones and he said well one of the, one of the reasons I can do that so well is because I'm colorblind he wasn't influenced by color but when he started teaching color then he had the, the chromosome system that he would teach apparently was based on just numbers just meter readings of certain a certain blue gel and get a reading of F8 at two tenths and it's going to it's going to look just like this so he could, he could see some colors but he couldn't he, he wasn't wasn't as biased as a lot of us are, mm. so I think Dean Collins for lighting and Franz Lanning just for uh, for his you know wildlife and nature shooting. Right. Well, thanks, Don. I appreciate it. It was oh, yeah. a great conversation. I'm glad yeah. to finally meet you in the flesh. Uh, same here. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me again for another episode of the Candid Frame. And again, I'd like to thank Don for uh, taking the time to uh, interview. If you have any questions or comments about the show, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website at thecandidframe.com. So until next time, enjoy the summer weather. And this is Ivarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>